This is Daniel Gallardo, and you're listening to the Tenkara Cast, the podcast about the simple Japanese method of fly fishing, Tenkara. It is only possible we create content such as this podcast and all the videos that we create because of your support, so we thank you so very much for purchasing Tenkariose rods, lines, and flies. Alright folks, long episode ahead and an hour and 20 minutes, but I cover every single thing about Tenkara nets in detail here. The making of the Tenkara nets is going to start on the 17 minute mark, and uh, one hour and six minutes I cover the finishing, and everything else that you need to know about Tenkara nets is in between. For more information, visit us at tenkariosea.com forward slash podcast. Thank you and enjoy it. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Tenkara Cast. Uh, This is actually going to be the first time I'm doing a video simultaneously because the topic of today's discussion is Tenkara Nets. And I thought that this would be a very visual uh, kind of topic. I'm going to try my best uh, to convey the information uh, just via audio as well for those of you who are listening. Uh, But for this episode, I'll highly encourage you to come to our website, tenkariosei.com forward slash podcast and look at the page for the Tenkara Nets episode where I'm going to be trying to show you different things um, in person. So hopefully it makes sense. I've never tried to do both at the same time. I'm going to be looking a little awkward in the video and I might be sounding a little cumbersome in the audio. So stay with me. Forgive me if I I make some blunders today. But here I am. This is the little Tenkara Museum actually that I have set up in my house. this is where I keep my collection of Tenkara nets, as well as a lot of mementos of Tenkara that, that I've come across over the last 12 years with Tenkara. Uh, things that I've acquired in Japan, you know, friends have given me here, uh, customers have sent us and so forth. And actually, by the way, if you're watching this video, might as well ask you at this point. Uh, take a look at this. If you know who sent me this really beautiful uh, miniature Tenkara rod with a Tenkara net, uh, which is really, really well done. Let me know. Somebody sent me this years ago. Um, it's, a, it's a wooden frame and the inside has this kind of like fake moss, you know, like miniature moss with a trout and the detail is incredible. But if you know who sent this or if you sent this, please let me know because when it arrived, I couldn't read the name. I, know, I forget now, it's been a few years. I forget if it was you know, damaged or if I just couldn't read it. Um, but it's beautiful and I never got to thank that person. So if you know uh, who sent this beautiful miniature or if you did it, please let me know because I, I feel awful. I never got to thank whoever sent me that. It's got a, and it does have a Tenkara net, which I'm going to be covering here today about how to make it. And that person really did a good job with a miniature Tenkara net. So let's start talking first about what is a Tenkara net. You know, how does it differ from a Western fly fishing net and so forth. So the first thing that you're going to notice in pretty much all the nets that I have on my wall here is that one of the main things that they have that is different from a Western fly fishing net or any other fishing net in the market right now is the angle uh, between the frame and the, the, the handle and frame. So the net that I have in my hand here, you know, I'm holding the handle vertically and the frame of the net, the hoop, um, it's almost at a 90 degree angle uh, from that. You know, the angle can vary a lot. It can be very uh, steep like this. It can be very acute, you know, 90 degrees, uh, or much less. You know, this net was one that I got in Japan, uh, you know, maybe a 20 degree angle. Um, So they can vary a lot, but there's 
pretty much all of the nets are going to have a little bit of an angle to them. And the Tenkara nets can be either crafted out of one branch of a tree, which is what I'm going to be focusing on in this episode, or they can be manufactured out of modern materials such as aluminum, carbon fiber, and so forth, which is something that we are actually developing at Tenkara USA, and I'm going to talk a little bit more at the end of the episode. And there are a couple of things that happen when you, when you put the angle on the net. One is that when you're carrying it, one of the most common ways to carry the net is to put it on your weighting belt, slide it, you know, the handle into it. And what happens is you're going to have one little point of contact on your back. And you can walk around, you can move freely, uh, and you just have this net sticking out with one tiny point of contact around your hip, as opposed to kind of having a flat board, you know, like it's pretty much always cumbersome to carry a Western fly fishing net. You can hang it with magnets, but the thing is flopping. Um, you can, you know, there's different ways to carry. You can tie it to a backpack and so forth. But I, my favorite thing about Tenkara nets is the angle that allows me to carry the net this way. If I'm wearing a little bit uh, backpack, I can just slide it on the side of my belt. And the, the angle is kind of going to conform to my hip a little bit. And it's just going to be carrying, you know, like I'm going to have this, um, the frame slightly in front of me and the handle is going to be kind of tucked behind me. I have a backpack and it's completely out of the way. I can move through brush and nothing's going to get caught. Uh, so that's kind of the two things in terms of carrying the net that make it very convenient. And then the other thing uh, in terms of functionality is that that angle allows you to hold, support the net with your knees in different angles. Um, while you can, you can have both hands free to manage fish. So I'm going to do a close-up of the video here so that you can see it. But imagine I'm just kind of crouching down and then I'm kind of, as I'm crouching down, you know, and I'll show you a close-up in a minute, um, you're supporting the frame or the handle be behind your knee. And all of a sudden you have both hands free, for example. Or you can kind of put it between your legs or your knees so the handle is tucked in between my legs. The two arms are going to be propped against my thigh or my knee. And I can have both hands free as I manage fish. Or if I'm in deeper water, similar to the carry on the net, I can tuck the handle right here on the side. And I can have the fish right here if I'm in deeper water. Both hands are free. Maybe I tuck the rod under my arm and I can you know, manage the fish right here. So the net that I'm holding in my hand kind of small. Uh, this is a very common kind of size if you're fishing a mountain stream, you know, where you're catching, you know, fish up to maybe 17 inches. And believe it or not, this net here, it's got a, di a diameter of roughly nine inches, nine and a half inches. And because the fish is going to be curving, you can fit the fish very easily in this up to 16 or 17 inches even. But the frame size can vary a lot. You know, this one is about nine inches diameter. This one here is probably about 11 inches. Uh, very commonly, those are kind of like the, the main extremes. I'm going to show you here in this video one that I never got to finish, which is a, a larger one that I'm hoping to make. You know, and this is going to be something for fish maybe up to 12, maybe 20 inches or so, because I have a a net that I've uh, developed a prototype before, roughly, I think it was like a 13, 14 inch diameter, and I've had fish up to 22 inches in this. So fish are gonna curve, they're gonna be sitting in there. 
I'm going to cover one more thing that you might notice is kind of different on these nets. Uh, there's two things actually. First is that the mash bag is usually like a kind of like a basket, you know, usually kind of firm. It's got a little bit of a firmness to it, not a super soft uh, mash, even though there are some ones that are really soft like this one. Um, most of them have a little bit of a structure to them. And the other thing that you'll notice is that the mesh size, the little holes, are really, really, really small. This one here, I think the size of the, the little diameter between each little hole is about a millimeter. And typically these are handmade, you know, so it's a super labor intensive process. There's a reason they're very expensive. Uh, largely, I think, you know, the, the mesh bag is what contributes to a lot of the cost because they're so labor intensive to make. Um, but the very fine um, mesh size, what it does is that it cradles the fish really gently. So sometimes we run across people saying like, oh, it's an island, not a bag. But because the holes are so fine, it's almost like a cloth. You know, like we've never seen a single scale on any of the, you know, the, the nets that we use. And that's because it's just such a fine uh, mesh material. And typically, even though they are knotted, the knots are super fine, but they're also on the outside. So that's the rougher part of the net more often than not. So just a little bit about the net. What I like about the mesh bag, um, the very fine holes, is that there's nowhere for your fly to get stuck. So the fly is not going to get through a hole and then just kind of get tangled like it does with nets with a larger size. And also like some nets with very large hoops or large hole sizes, they can even damage a fish by like, I've seen gills of the fish kind of getting damaged, you know, just kind of hitting the, the hole of the mesh because they can kind of fit in there. Not super common, but that happens. So I, I like this mesh style a lot. Um, I'll talk a little bit about it in our making part, but just since I'm talking about the mesh size, uh, we have a few mesh bags available for sale at tenkariose.com, but it's hard to find a really good consistent source and they are expensive. You know, there are like, I forget what the price is. I should have looked it up, but they're not cheap because they're very, very labor intensive. Um, but if you're watching a video, you know, they just come in this little basket, a couple of sizes, depending on the hoop size that you're kind of making a net for. And that's available on our website. Uh, we still have a few. We don't have a ton of them. But you might be able to use other materials or other mesh bags and that kind of thing. Uh, a name that you're going to be seeing thrown around for Tenkara nets very commonly, it's going to be Tamo, T-A-M-O. So Tamo is a, it's a specifically a fishing net, uh, whether it's a Ayu or Tenkara. Um, and that's going to be known within fishing circles. The other name that people use for nets, and I had just learned that recently, is Ami, A-M-I. That's a general term for nets. You know, people that don't fish may recognize the term, but anglers will call it tamo. So oftentimes when you're looking at Tenkara discussions, people are referring it to, as tamo uh, as a way to differentiate these style nets, you know, with the angle and that kind of thing from other nets. So those are a couple of the main differences between Tenkara nets and other ones. But let me talk a little bit about where they come from. So Tenkara nets, one of the most fascinating thing about them is that they were essentially developed by people with what nature gave them. They were not necessarily designed. I think people over time started kind of picking up 
little things that made the net a little bit better than others. But this is something that nature gives the angler to make. And what I mean by that is that the way the traditional tenkara nets are made, they're made from one single branch of a tree. So if you imagine a branch coming out of a tree, and that branch coming out is going to be your handle, and you know it's going to keep going, and you're picking a branch that has two parallel arms somewhere in the, in the middle, and you're going to be hooping that into your frame. And I'm holding the net in my hand here, so if you are watching the video, you can see that very clearly. More commonly, and I'll talk about how to select a branch, you're, if you visualize a, a plus sign, you know, where the branch keeps on going, you have two parallel arms, that's the ideal branch. You cut off the very middle, and then you kind of have a hoop, and that's what nature gave anglers uh, to make nets with. And I love the fact that it's just like something that is so well designed, so functional, yet it's just something that nature provided us. And that's a beautiful thing. So the nets, um, we don't know exactly when they were developed, you know, by whom, um, and so forth. But there's a very, very strong chance that the Tenkara net was originally not made for Tenkara. And the reason I say that is that, as far as we know, Tenkara anglers back in the day, the professional anglers, they were not really catching, you know, they were not um, needing a net. So they had the rod line fly, they caught fish, most of their fish were, you know, under 15 inches or so. But even the bigger ones that they caught, they would just bring it, they were eating the fish, they were just taking them for food. So they would just kind of take them, kill them, put them in a creel and that kind of thing. But they didn't use nets as far as we know back in the day. However, there's a different style of fly or fishing in Japan that is called IU fishing. And there's a couple of ways that people catch IU, but one of the most common ways is that they're using a live decoy fish. And they have the super long rods, 20 plus feet. And the IU are really small fish. They're like seven inches. A nine inch one is actually a big fish. They're really prized for, uh, for the eating, the flavor of the fish. But the way that the angler will catch an IU, 20 foot long rods, they kind of feel like they have a fish, they lift it really quickly, and the objective that they, the way that they would bring the fish in is that they would lift it quickly and the fish would kind of come flying towards them, and they try to get in the net. So that's kind of how we still see nowadays people using or catching IU in Japan. So when you go there, see these people with super long rods, uh, chances are it's not Tenkara, it's going to be IU fishing that you're watching. They have very large nets, very large hoops, and they bring the fish in and they have the large hoops, not because of the size of the fish, but so that the fish can go in very easily. They, can, they don't have to aim quite as hard. But I think the Tenkara angler probably took the design and just kind of, when we started looking at Tenkara more as a sport, you know, probably in the 70s, uh, maybe a little bit before that, um, then they started using Tenkara nets. I think the Tenkara nets have been around for much longer um, for a variety of reasons we don't really know, but um, primarily the nets became more common when people start fish, started fishing for sport. So that's where I think the nets come from as far as I uh, discovered in my research.
So let's talk about making the Tenkara net. So I was holding in my hand a little earlier the branch that you make a Tenkara net out of. So the first thing is going to be, you know, like, let me describe the process as a whole just to kind of give you an overview. You go out to the woods, you look for the ideal branch. That might be, you know, half of the work, especially in the beginning. You look for the branch that's going to work well. You kind of test, you know, see if it's going to form a hoop and that kind of thing. You cut it. I'll talk about when to cut it and how to select a branch. But you form a hoop, let it dry for a long time in that shape, and then you're going to splice uh, the, the arms of the net. In the middle here, you're going to glue that together. So the splice is going to be really fine, hopefully very strong. It's going to be a long splice, as long as possible. And then you finish it if you want to. Um, oftentimes, I, I like to use a tongue oil finish, and I'll talk a little bit about that as well, about finishes. Um, let it dry so it's a little bit more water resistant. Put a mesh bag, and that's it. So that's a process, uh, the overview of the process, which is how long does it take to make the net? So started talking about uh, walking in the woods, finding the branch. That might be half of your time right there. Uh, could be a couple hours, could be a day, could be a couple weeks, I don't know. That's gonna vary a lot. Then the actual making, we're gonna strip the bark, we're gonna form the hoop, and we're gonna let it dry. And that's really, really important. I'll talk a little bit more about drying in a second. But for the most part, that could take from three months up to a year if you're living in a very humid environment. Um, but you don't want to skimp on the drying part. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, that's really important. So that could take a long time. Once it's kind of done drying, you have most of the shape done. It depends on your skill level at that point and how much, you want to pour, how much work you want to put into it. The hardest part for me was always splicing the branch right here. You know, I didn't have a lot of experience, had to learn some tricks along the way, but splicing the branch kind of took me a little bit of trial and error. After a while, it became a little bit better, but that always took me an hour, two hours to make it kind of properly. Then I spent, uh, you know, glued it, let it dry, let it cure, and then I spent time either carving the branch, you know, kind of finishing the handle, shaving it, that kind of thing. That might take me from an hour if the branch was primarily all done. Uh, if it was a really good branch, very smooth and so forth. Or I've had branches like the juniper one as a very hardwood. I kind of remember spending at least like probably about 10 hours of working, like carving, kind of shaping it and, and that kind of thing. So that's kind of the answer for how long it takes. Let me um, preface this whole next part here about making Tenkara nets that I have no woodworking experience whatsoever. Uh, tenkara, I mean, I've made a couple of projects at home, but really no woodworking experience. So if you do have experience with woodworking and I say something that makes no sense, that's why. Because I, uh, the nets were actually the first project that got me interested in wood woodworking and that's actually the only project that i work with wood um and it just became kind of became interested in making my own and i started learning a few things and made a bunch of mistakes i kind of tried to register the my making process in the beginning on our website and i'll put a link in this episode to a couple of posts that i've made in the past about how i kind of went about making them but 
no woodworking experience. And to share a little bit of my, about my, my history with woodworking, making nets, became fascinated with them. And I lived in a small apartment at the time, but the first part of it was finding the proper branch. And that actually took a fair amount of research because you can read the Japanese information, but we don't have the same trees as they do in Japan. So you might read that the trees that are often used for tenkara net making in Japan are kaya. It's a type of tree called a kaya, K-A-I-A. In the States or other countries, we don't have that tree. So when I started becoming interested, first thing I was like, I started looking at trees all over the place. First of all, to see if I could find the right shape. And then I was doing a little reading about water resistance and that kind of quality, you know, durability, all this other stuff that I was reading. And to me, it became clear that the most important thing is going to be having trees that have the right shape, that provide the right shape uh, for you. Because you might have trees that are really good for water purposes, but they don't have the right branch configuration. If the branches are, you know, the different arms are not parallel, it's not going to work really well. So the first, the main, most important thing, and pretty much the only thing that I really take into account is finding the tree that provides the right um, shape and the right diameters as well. And I found that uh, primarily pine trees uh, tend to have this configuration where you have one arm, you know, one branch sticking out with two kind of side branches, often sometimes parallel um, or in line with each other, I should say, not parallel. You know, a branch is going to the left and to the right and they're completely in line with each other so you can make a hoop. Um, not all of them are going to have it, but in my experience in America, it has been Jeffrey pines and Ponderosa pines have been the easiest uh, trees to find those branches. On my wall here, if you're looking at the video, you'll see this net here. This was actually made out of a juniper tree. So juniper trees tend to be really gnarled, you know, like the branches are all over the place. Uh, it's not completely in line, but I just, I literally, and I'll talk about how I started visualizing nets, but I literally saw that branch when I was driving and I spotted it and I cut it and I made it into one of my favorite nets actually, uh, right there. Another net that I made that was a different tree or different plant was a manzanita. Um, but I will say that right now that I've never found, never been able to find another juniper branch or another manzanita branch that would work as well. So they're very, very, very rare to find uh, the right shapes out of other, uh, other trees, especially manzanitas and junipers. You might be able to, but it might take a lot of looking. So when I kind of first identified that uh, Jeffrey, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I'll share this right now as well. The manzanita branch, by the way, is my very first net. And actually it is one of my favorite. I've never used because it's just so cute and pretty. Um, but you know, it is my first net, so I was just kind of lucky um, that we spotted this. Actually, I think my wife spotted a branch when we were looking at a bush, and I cut it and made a really nice net. But Jeffrey Pines and Ponderosa Pines, let's talk about branch selection. So when I first started, I started looking at those trees primarily. And I would see sometimes that they would have the right configuration. Um, 
and most of what he took was walking in the woods a lot. And you also want to be mindful of a couple of things. Uh, you do not want to be cutting branches out of private property or national parks. Uh, those will be illegal. Private property, unless you know the owner, you have to ask for permission, obviously. Uh, definitely don't cut it in any national park. Most state parks wouldn't allow it as well. So be mindful of where you can legally cut a branch. National forest, different national forests, forests might have different regulations. The ones, the times that I cut branches, these were national forests in California primarily, although I had some in Colorado as well, where I contacted them or I went to their website and it specifically said something about, you know, if you're collecting less than, I don't remember the numbers now, but less than five pounds or less than certain number of branches, you can do it as long as it's uh, uh, as a hobby and you're not doing it commercially. If you're doing it commercially, you start having to get licenses and permissions and that kind of thing. So for the most part, there's a lot of places you might be able to collect a branch. And, and you know, they're, you're just trimming a tree. Uh, but I will mention when you're cutting a branch off, try to cut the branch as close to the tree as possible or as close to where the last arms of the tree are going to be coming coming out you don't want to cut the branch that the part that's going to form the handle in the very middle because that's going to be a little harder for the for the tree to heal so that's once i started looking at those trees um in the beginning it took me a ton of walking like hours of walking and luckily i really enjoyed that part of it i uh, would spend just a lot of time in the woods uh, looking for the right branch and it just kind of got my mind really focused it was just a very pleasant way to spend time in the woods learning about trees um, and with time I started noticing that I was finding those branches quicker and quicker uh, it didn't take very long like in the beginning it was really hard to spot them because I was kind of learning but with time I started spotting them really quickly when they were there were around to the point where maybe just after like 10 outings or something, I started spotting them when I was driving even uh, because you just kind of see what you're looking for and you kind of key in on that. Uh, and that's how I started kind of picking the branches. But what do you want to look for when you're making a tenkara net out of a branch? First thing is going to be the configuration that I mentioned. Um, you want to get the plus sign shaped branch coming out of a tree with two little arms to the sides as in line as possible. Um, and you also want to look at the diameters that that branch is going to provide you because the main branch is going to be the handle. So you want to have something that's kind of going to be nice and, you know, just nice to hold that. Keep in mind though, that the tree is going to have bark around it. And I'll talk about that in a second, but you want to get something that's slightly fatter than you want for both the handle and the frame. Uh, because you're going to be removing the bark, doing some sanding and that kind of thing. So, you know, handle size, that's completely a personal preference. For the hoop size, uh, for the hoop, um, the thickness of the arms here, they're going to form the hoop. I kind of think of it as a little, kind of like the, the, uh, the thickness of a Sharpie pen or a pinky finger, kind of worth for most people, I suppose. Um, but you can't, you know, go too wrong. If you get a little bit fatter, you can always cut some off. 
if you get it too thin, the net might be a little bit harder to, might not have quite as much strength. Uh, so that's the main part in there. While the trees, while the branch is still on the tree, you want to get the side arms and bend them so that you can see that it's going to form a hoop, you know, kind of more or less naturally. So you kind of want to give it a little flex. You want to make sure that the, the diameter, you know, is going to be kind of appropriate, that the thickness, you know, is kind of consistent throughout until the two branches meet, you know, and that kind of thing. So you want to just kind of test that before you ever cut a branch. I have had branches that looked beautiful. The handle was really nice. Branches were, the two side arms were in line with each other. And when I bent them, one just wanted to come in a straight line. The other one formed a nice hoop because maybe one side was very thin, not quite as strong as the other side. So I let those be. Uh, you don't want to go cutting things that you're not going to be very proud of because it's going to take a while for you to make the, the net. You're going to put a lot of effort into it. Talking about handle size, by the way, a lot of people think that an ideal net will have a long handle. In my opinion, that couldn't really be farther from the truth. Uh, because with proper technique, when you're fishing with Tenkata, your technique is in bringing a fish in is always going to be similar. You're going to either angle the, the rod if you have a short line, or if you have a long line, you're going to hand line the fish. But at that point, you want to bring the fish as close to you as you possibly can. So that you can kind of calmly have control over it and you can scoop it. So I bring my fish, if you're watching me, my hand, my hand that is holding the line and the fish is kind of below it, uh, is maybe like 12 inches away from my hand holding the net. That's kind of how close I want to be. I don't want to be with my hand holding the line, kind of extended up, uh, several feet up and trying to, hand, uh, trying to net the fish with a long handle because then I'm gonna have less control. So if you're watching me on a video, long handle, not very useful. And if I'm here, it's really awkward. So for me, the ideal handle size is roughly 10 inches. You know, something that gives me a little room uh, to kind of play with my hands, but never more than 12 inches for me. Uh, 10 inches is a really good size, short handle, because I'm always kind of scooping the fish in close to me. And that's a huge technique tip right here that I want to give you today for Tenkata fishing. Just bring the fish as close to you as you can. I know a lot of people are going to have a hesitation to do that because they think the fish is going to break the line. But if you do it gently, if the fish wants to run a little bit, you kind of let it go. But do it gently. You're kind of bringing this really stubborn dog you know, to you. That's kind of how you want to approach that. One thing that I mentioned a couple of times is that you want to pick a branch that's going to be a plus sign shape. And I mentioned that because the most common, when people start becoming interested in making tenkara nets, the, what I see the most is that people will pick a Y-shaped branch. You know, it's uh, much easier to find that kind of branch. You know, you just kind of have this uh, branch kind of coming out and maybe one branch, you know, going off uh, kind of a similar direction. Um, and kind of forming this Y, and then you kind of form that into a hoop. But there's a few reasons that I, a couple of main reasons really, that I recommend you stay away from that kind of branch. For one, when it's a Y-shaped branch, even though it's easier to find and you can make it, you can still form it, there's a high likelihood that you could have a split in the middle 
as the branch dries um, or throughout using that kind of thing because there's a fair amount of stress going on in between those two branches that wants to kind of force it out sometimes. Um, the other thing is it's going to be harder to form a circular shape. So that's another thing that maybe I didn't talk about, but you'll notice that almost all Tenkara nets have as circular a shape as you can get. And part of that is just that, you know, you're going to put the fish here. You don't have to worry about orientation. But one of the bi biggest reasons is that a circle is going to be one of the strongest shapes that you can make this, you know, uh, net. If you have something that's kind of like Y-shaped and a little bit more rectangular, if you hit it or if you weigh it, it's going to have stress in different areas. A circle tends to distribute the forces a little bit more evenly. So if you have a large fish here, and let's say your branch is not particularly thick, a circular branch is going to take the pressure much better than a thin branch that is not circular. So that's something that you want to keep in mind for sure. Now, so I think I talked about most everything I want to talk about the branch selection. Takes time, enjoy walking in the woods. <laughs> that's kind of my main advice. Actually, one more thing. Let me talk about the, um, the aesthetic part of it, which is one of my favorite parts of it. I mean, the Tenkara nets are just so beautiful that and one of the things that really can make them very beautiful or absolutely stunning, in my opinion, is finding branches that have character to them. That's why I love this juniper branch. I thought it had a lot of character to it. Uh, for those of you watching the video, you'll see a little bit of the, the pith kind of exposed in a couple of areas. That's natural. I didn't do that. Uh, it's got, you know, it's as circular, circular as I was able to get it in as uniform, but the branch is gnarled, you know, it's got a little bit of a waviness to it. So that branch has got a lot of character, it's just beautiful, beautiful wood as well. <coughs> Some nets that I've seen in Japan, um, like this for example, some nets that I've seen in Japan will have like what some people might think of as flaws, you know, in the handle uh, or throughout different parts of the net. So the net that I'm holding in my hand right now, the handle has this gash in the middle and you can kind of see it's natural. It's not handmade, you know, it, you can't quite get that kind of shape if you try to make it. So this is a little bit of kind of going to the Japanese of wabi, philosophy of wabi-sabi, you know, kind of looking at beauty and the imperfect, you know, just kind of what is given to you and so forth. But after my first couple few branches uh, that I picked primarily based on the shape, I started looking for branches that would have more character to them. And you just kind of have to look, but one insight that I had and I was able to find a really good branch, actually one of my favorite, favorite branches, is this one right here, which has um, also, the exposed um, inner layer of the, the branch, I forget if it's called a pith or not, sorry, English is not my first language, uh, but you can completely see the exposed part right here. I did not make that. That was natural. It's got this kind of gnarled stuff, and it's got another really nice gnarled part on the underside of that branch. And the insight that I had, and there's a couple more here as well, which is really cool, but the insight that I had on this one is that I started looking at branches that were going to be really, really low, close to the ground. 
thinking that they would have a high chance that some animal came and chewed at it. This branch, you know, kind of exposed, it eventually got healed, but you know, it's something that something chewed onto this and the tree kind of, the branch kind of healed around it in some way. So, you know, things are kind of smooth and that kind of thing. But finding those kind of branches is one of my kind of favorites now that I collected after my, my first few ones. Um, you know, so something like this one actually in particular, or maybe it was, no, it was this one actually. This one in particular was a very low hanging branch in an area that I had seen a lot of cows uh, hanging. And I just kind of had a hunch. It's like, I wonder if a cow ever chewed on, you know, it could be a deer as well, but you had this kind of chews on the handle. Unfortunately, this one, you, you broke and I have to fix it. I uh, fell on it. That's one of the downsides of this crafted, you know, tenkara nets. Um, actually, my very first tenkara net I bought in Japan, I had it on the back of my um, belt and I was walking down a steep bank and I slipped and I fell onto it and I broke it. So that's a downside to the crafted kind of wood. You know, it can break and you have this angle, might be making the breaking a little bit more easily. I just completely got in the habit of every time now, now that I learned a lesson the hard way, every time I'm gonna go down something, like a, even if it's not very steep, but if there's any slight chance that I might fall, I remove the net from the back and I hold it in my hand because if I fall, I'm just gonna toss it, you know, very low chance that I'm gonna break it. So something to keep in mind about these as well. When to collect the, uh, the branch? When you read forums in Japan, uh, you might come across people saying that you should collect a branch in the winter uh, because that's when there's gonna be less sap going through the tree. I've actually collected all of my branches in spring or summer, potentially fall. I don't think I've ever collected a branch in the, uh, during the winter. Um, a couple of reasons for that. The main reason is that spring and summer, you might find branches, depending on where you are really, but definitely spring, you're gonna find branches that are a little bit more flexible. So not only can you test the tree a little bit more before you cut it, but it's gonna be much easier to form the hoop uh, when the branch is flexible, you know, it's got some sap kind of flowing through it, I guess. It's greener. I think those are better than trying to pick something that's drier. A drier branch, um, and I'll talk about shaping, but you might have to steam it or, and be really careful not to break it. A greener branch is going to be better. So Japanese say winter. I don't know that much about trees, to be honest. Don't know if there's a a downside to cutting during the winter in terms of the tree healing. Maybe that's something I'll research next, put a note. But if you know about that, just let me know as well. So let's talk about what you need to make a net now. And this part is actually one of my favorite parts just because, as I mentioned, I didn't have any woodworking experience when I started making nets. I didn't have, and I still don't have a wood shop, you know, like a lot of tools and that kind of thing. And I also didn't have much space at all. When I first made my, my first nets, living in a really small apartment with my wife, all I needed was a tiny corner of the house that I put a tarp and I, I'm gonna guess it was like four feet by four feet. You know, I had this tarp and I had a couple of tools on the floor. You know, I could get shavings in there, it's, you know, some sanding, uh, some sawdust and that kind of thing. Not a bunch, you know, I try to be kind of careful in vacuum as, 
often as I could, but you really don't need much space and you don't need many tools. So the first thing that you're gonna need is a, a little saw, you know, um, some kind of saw for collecting your branch. I tried a bunch of different saws, you know, in the beginning I think I wanted something super lightweight, uh, you know, like as lightweight as I could um, because I didn't want to carry much when I was going out and finding the branches. Uh, with time, you know, and I also tried like a, just a wire, which is good because you can have that with you. But if I was dedicating myself to looking for branches, if I was going somewhere with that intention, I loved having a really sturdy, small, you know, this is like six inch blade, uh, very sturdy saw to cut those branches with really kind of aggressive teeth because I could cut it really quickly and just be done and be on my way uh, as opposed to just kind of spending a lot of time on the tree. The other two things that I really liked having on the field when I went to look for branches were a pair of gloves because you're going to be dealing with sap. So a pair of gloves, for me, it was really important. You know, like you don't want to deal with all the sap in your hand. And to go along with that, a plastic bag as well, because if you're going to be putting in your car, just to kind of keep the sap kind of from going around. So those are the three tools, three things you need when you're going to collect a branch. And then when you get home and you start doing other things, uh, first part of the process is going to be removing the bark of the tree. And here's a pro tip, you wanna do that, do that as quickly and as soon as possible because actually the, the branch that I was showing earlier in this video, if you're watching, uh, part of the reason I left, a, uh, part of the reason I left the bark on this, partly was to show people, you know, kind of the, the stage at which this branch was in, but mostly it was actually because I left it on, started letting it dry to see kind of what would happen and it was a pain in the neck to remove the bark, so I just kind of did a little bit and I left it at that. So remove the bark soon after you get home, and to do that, you can use a variety of things, like a carving knife can be good. And when the branches were wet, actually, all I had to do was usually, you don't really need to use the tools that much. As a matter of fact, you can get away with having no tools at this point. Because all you need to do is you can kind of with your fingers, when they're green, uh, you can either cut a little slit or force it with your fingers, uh, force it apart and peel it. That's a huge advantage to picking this when it's green. The knife would come in handy once in a while to open it up a little bit more, kind of pry it. Might be better to not have a particularly sharp knife at this point, um, just because so you don't cut into the tree, uh, into the branch. But it was pretty easy, you know, just kind of using something to scrape. If there's a little bit of a pithy kind of, um, if there's like an inner bark kind of sh a layer, sometimes you can use something to kind of scrape it off right away or sand it down the road. So that's the first kind of step when you get home. Take the bark off, maybe using a little tool to scrape it off or help help you peel the, the, uh, the bark. The other tools that you're going to need basic ones, um, a fine saw. So a fine saw is going to be either used to cut parts of the branch that you may not want, but you don't want to make it too rough because then you have to spend more time finishing. But primarily the most important thing, you need a very fine saw, and that can be 
the more common, the more easier to find kind of saw will be a dowel uh, saw, you know, something that's just designed to cut something fine because you're gonna need that for your splicing. You know, when you're gonna join the two arms together, you don't have a ton of room to make errors there. You can do a little bit of shaving later, but that's gonna be a thin branch. So you wanna use as fine as a delicate a saw as you can find. And this is the only, it's a Japanese saw, the one that I'm holding in my hand. It um, actually works the opposite of most saws where it's a pole saw. Um, so it just cuts, cuts it really fine, very effortless, you know, it just kind of goes slowly, but it works beautifully for making a splice. A dowel saw can work, the other ones, not too sure. Um, although I will mention this, I spent some time learning from um, a teacher in Japan um, where he, he was one of the master um, net makers in Japan and made hundreds and hundreds of nets probably over the years. His process was a little bit more industrial for the making the splice where he used a uh, uh, belt sander actually. So he would get the, the branch kind of like the size that he needed and he just belt sanded it so that it would be perfectly flat and he had the skills to make them so that they would match perfectly. I don't have the skills. I've tried that on a couple of ones. I found that using a saw worked better for me, but just to kind of give you something to think about. But mostly a, a sharp knife. You know, I like this for carving away uh, some parts of the branch. One thing that you'll notice in the design of all the branches or all the Tenkara nets as well, is that the bottom end of the handle is gonna be pointy for the most part. It's gonna have a taper to it. And the reason for that, it kind of goes back to the functionality where we're sliding this onto our belt very often. So the point just kind of makes it easier to slide onto your belt as opposed to if you were to leave it flat. So a carving knife was really nice. Sometimes I use a saw, sometimes a carving knife to kind of give it some detail, uh, but it's very nice to kind of end the, the frame. In my hand now I'm holding a Actually, this is probably the last branch frame that I made before I kind of took a break from it and I want to resume work on my branches, on my nets, because I haven't done that in a while. And I really surprised me because I have a box with uh, branches that have been drying for, at this point, years. And this was in it. And I looked at it and I thought it was so beautiful. And then I went to look at the splice and uh, I'll try to get a close-up of the splice as well so you can see in the video later. could barely found, find it. This is probably after I made like, I don't know, 10, 15 branches, uh, nets. And it had this really beautiful kind of curvy handle. And I thought I must have bought it in Japan. I didn't remember it. But then I had my stamp on it. Um, I made this. <laughs> so I uh, just want to share something with you that I'm getting a complete kick out of. Um, you can see the part of the reason I just picked it up was to show you the taper. Very nice taper, but I couldn't believe that I actually made this frame and I never actually got to finish it, putting a net frame on it, just because I, I think maybe I moved, I was in the process of moving when I finished that, I think. But uh, so yeah, after a while, even if you have no experience making nets, um, after a while you can become okay with it. You know, I, I think I made must be about a dozen to 15 nets. That might have been close to my last. And 
it is the most gorgeous one maybe that I have just in terms of the technical aspects of it for sure. Now, other tools uh, that you're going to need. Sorry, I keep going on tangents. A file. Uh, a course file is kind of good and that goes along with sandpaper, you know, so this one had like super aggressive teeth. You don't really need this. Um, it was nice to have sometimes, but what you do need is um, a set of different types of sandpaper, different gr uh, grits of sandpaper. Something really coarse. In my hand, I'm holding one that's kind of like a sponge, uh, kind of block. You know, I can hold it. You can just use sandpaper, like paper, and sometimes you put it around a piece of wood so that you have more of a kind of a uniform um, sanding. And you want to get as many grits as you can. Uh, get a full set of it. You know, it might start at 200, uh, 200 or 220, I forget. And you go down to, you know, the next one, 320, 400. I think you, I think you can get away with those three. But you may want to get also an 800 uh, grit as well. Uh, and those are going to allow you to make finer and finer, more polished kind of finishes uh, for your branch, for your net. Um, I had a set as well that I bought of incredibly fine grits. Uh, these go to, I want to say like 6,000 grit. I mean, these are like really fine polishing. Um, sandpaper and I found them really beautiful to work with primarily at the finishing stage you know you apply a coat of something and then you want to kind of polish it up a little bit before coats um, just using really fine ones to kind of get a glossier more you know more finished kind of product so those three materials primarily I'm going to go back to this fine saw carving kind of knife sandpaper those are the only three materials you really need to make your net um, and maybe some kind of cord or something so you can tie the frame together as it dries i used uh, later in my nets uh, from what i learned from a teacher in japan i started using inner bike tubes uh, just cutting strips of it because you can stretch it really hard and wrap it around and it keeps it in that shape so that's what i have in my hand right now forced it into shape put the bike tube in there let it dry a um, couple of optional materials again some file and one that i kind of liked but it's not really necessary for a lot of branches um, this one has some little thorns growing weird <laughs> um, but a thing that I found useful for some branches when I was making a lot of them was a wok holder, which is something that you would find, a wok, W-O-K, something you would find in a restaurant supply store. Uh, coincidentally, the, you know, the wok holder usually has two circles, like a smaller one, and it kind of funnels up into a larger one. And coincidentally, they're really close to the diameters that you need for most and kind of net mesh bags. One is roughly nine inches in diameter. The top one is a little over 10. Uh, those are the more common kind of net uh, bag sizes. But what you can see here, this was probably a very stubborn uh, branch that was ha I was having a hard time kind of getting into a circular shape. So I used a wok holder to 
force it into the circular shape and I tied string around it at various points to kind of force that into the shape that I wanted. Uh, and that's going to be useful during the drying process. Talking about circular shape, one thing that you can do um, if you feel like you have a really kind of good branch, uh, you want to work with it because it has a lot of characteristics that you like, uh, but you have a hard time branding that into a circle, like the manzanita branch that I showed earlier, it was really difficult to get this into a nice circle. I used a lot of steam uh, to do this. Woodworkers are going to be familiar with the process, but for me it was completely new. I would just get a kettle, heat it up, have a really kind of solid, solid jet of steam coming out, and I would apply that to specific spots along this branch, kind of flex them a little bit and hold for a while, kind of let it cool, and with enough steaming, enough shaping and letting cool, eventually I got to a nice circle. Or you can just boil like a large pot of water, let the branch sit there for like 10 minutes with a lid on top so that that frame is going to be absorbing more moisture and you can work with it a little bit more easily. So some techniques you can try that for shaping your branch. I've never had to shape a handle. A handle is kind of like a very important thing. It's going to be really hard to shape. Never had to do that. But you can use steam. You can just kind of use slow pressure. I've never actually broken a branch. Probably because I work with, used to work with them when they were very green. But I've bent them and been lucky that I've never broken a branch. So the drying process of a net. So you shape it into the circle. Now you have to let it dry. And how long you're going to have to let it dry is going to depend a lot on where you live and what kind of humidity you have where you are. So in Japan, the forums that you read might talk about letting dry for a year or two years even. I know, I know some net makers in Japan that might let it dry as long as two years, but Japan is incredibly humid. Uh, so that's a huge difference. They try to put in a place in their house, like an attic or something where it's going to be a little drier, um, but it's still a very humid place. So really hard, takes a long time to dry a branch. In Colorado, I can probably get away with about three months, two to three months even, uh, in dry and branch. When I was in San Francisco, it used to take me about three to six months. One way, I don't know too much about testing the branch, and I was first ones I was going by feel, just kind of erring on the side of letting it dry more than less. Later on, uh, for some of the later branches, I bought a... Um, uh, moisture, I think it's a wood specifically for wood, but a wood moisture uh, meter, which has two little prongs and you put it in the wood and it tells you roughly the percentage. And if I remember right, about eight to 10% is kind of what you're shooting for. You know, it's always going to have a little bit of humidity there. Um, but that's a good level of humidity to work with. Now, very important in the drying process, there's a very good chance that the parts that you have cut, the parts that are kind of exposed, they're gonna dry faster and they could crack. So there are two things that you can do with it in my experience. What I prefer to do is cut the parts that are gonna be cut away, the parts that I don't really need, cut them longer than you need by 
four inches, three inches, you know, cut them, give them a good amount of room. So for example, I'm looking at the plus shaped branch, the, you know, like the, imagine the bottom of the plus coming out of the tree. The two arms are kind of going to the sides of the plus sign. The top part of the plus sign is the branch that keeps on going and might have other little branches out of that. The part that keeps on going, you're going to cut it away as close to the, eventually as close to the, to the, to the, arms as possible just to kind of have a nice finish but uh, in the process of drying I would leave a three to four inch stub in here because that has kind of happened in this one it kind of cracks it may potentially go into the tree I haven't into the handle I haven't had that problem so I just cut everything longer than it needs to be so the handle exaggerated in this net that I'm holding in my hand I like a short handle um, I would cut, leave several inches there that could potentially crack. This one never did. Same thing with the arms, several inches, room for, you know, room for error here, but this could break and you can do that. The other thing that you can do is put white glue or wax. I preferred white glue uh, when I was making these. Um, put a coat of white glue, let it dry or wax material and all that's going to do is it's going to slow down the rate of drying of the extremities, the ends, to kind of match the rest of the net. So what causes the cracking is when the extremities, you know, they're exposed, they're going to dry faster than the rest, they'll crack. Um, so if you put wax or glue, you might be able to prevent cracks as well as your branch dries. But very important, you select a branch, you're going to be anticipating it, you want to avoid chances of um, having a break. Actually, let me talk a little bit about splicing the net. You know, it's, I'm not the best person about, you know, to talk about this, but here's my process. You shape the frame into a hand, in, into a, a, a hoop. You know, the, the side that is opposite from the handle, you know, the, the other end of the circle, that's where roughly your splice is gonna be made. And a splice, what I mean is just that the two branches are going to be cut in a diagonal, you know, and both of them are going to be matched so you can glue them together. Um, and it, it's a hard part to work with. There might be different techniques there that work well. One technique that I made, I think I was making that with most of my nets. I, I got some kind of cotton uh, line wrapped roughly where I was going to cut it wrapped it around kind of tight and I actually put white glue all around it, covering white glue and let it dry. So what that does is essentially makes a cast right around here and it kind of holds the two branches together. And once it dries, you start cutting the two branches in line with each other. And your goal here um, is when you're cutting it, your goal is to make your splice go for roughly at least two inches. You want to make a very long splice. So what that means is that the angle that you're cutting, the branch is going to have to be very high. You know, if you cut it 90 degrees, they're just going to be joined together like this, not quite as strong. If you cut a little bit less, you're going to have a tiny little bit of overlap between the two, not quite as strong. If you cut it at 60 degrees roughly, 
and that's kind of a gas eyeballing, you're going to have a good long splice, you know, like a couple inches overlap. I think there's a rule of thumb. I don't remember what it was, but a multiple of the diameter of what you're trying to join together, you know. So if this is a quarter inch, maybe I think it was like a two inch thing, you know, something like that. But I don't remember what the rule of thumb is. My goal is to make a long splice. So with that cast, I was able to cut it diagonally. Um, both of them would have the same line already going. So I could kind of, even if they were to split apart, I could just kind of continue going in as perfectly a straight a line as I could. Try not to have any angle on your saw. You know, you just kind of keep that angle uniform between the two branches so they can then join them together. And then in terms of joining them, um, I've tried a bunch of different things. So I tried, primarily I was using some strong wood glue. I don't have a name to recommend right now, um, but a good wood glue, essentially. You glue them together, wrap it with some line or wrap it with a um, bike tube or something that's going to hold it together until it really cures. But here's, after I made a lot of nets, I um, went to Japan and uh, I spent some time with a net maker um, over there, um, Yoshimura-san. And I was actually the only person that he's ever, besides his staff, that he's actually ever taught his secrets. I spent a day and a half learning different techniques from him. Um, and he passed away a couple of years after I met him, unfortunately. Uh, I was supposed to go back and spend more time learning about net making with him. Uh, but I, the day and a half was absolutely magical because I saw all kinds of techniques, like things that I never expected, as I mentioned earlier, using a sand belt to make that splice, for example, where, you know, he just had the touch. I couldn't quite make it, but he would get that pretty simple concept. You get one arm, put on a sand belt, you quickly just kind of, you know, as long as you're holding the right angle, quickly kind of shaves it off, do exactly the same angle on the other branch, and you're done. Your splice is done super quick. Um, with some practice, I'm sure I could get there, but I just prefer the sawing technique. But here's the other thing that he taught, that he did that was really surprising to me. And actually, here's one of his nets, a really gorgeous net. I've got a couple of them here. Um, beautiful net, you know, kind of like knurled here. Uh, he used some rattan, you know, like to decorate the net. Um, probably an urushi finish. I can kind of feel it's a little rubberized. It's very rich, deep color. But here's how he did the splice. You know, he shaved it off and he used super glue. Uh, he actually showed me the, he had a, um, the chemical name to it. I forget what it is. But, uh, you know, I looked it up later and it's like just super glue. And he put super glue and he wrapped the, the splice area with a little bit of cellophane wrap or like your kitchen wrap, plastic wrap. And then on top of that, he would get the inner bike tube. He's the one that taught me the trick as well. He would get a strip of inner bike tube and just kind of wrap it really, really tight. So the super glue would just kind of glue it together. Incredibly famous. You know, he had been making that, I think, for 40 years. Uh, so that was his technique, you know, not using wood glue, which I was really surprised by. But um, so just give you something to think about. 
if you're a woodworker and you have some downsides to that, let me know. I'd love to learn. But the guy was making incredible nets, very well renowned, and that's why he used. Um, the other thing that you could try as well, and possibly you might, might want to start getting sometimes, is some rattan, you know, like a rattan um, strips. You know, you can get like a little roll of it. You can get thicker or thinner. I think thinner the better. It just looks better, you know. Um, and you can use that to either decorate your net, you know, like the one that he made. Potentially, he was trying to hide a fly in there and use, you know, used a little bit more to decorate it. Um, I've used it before to reinforce um, a splice. So the um, Mazanita branch that I have here in front of me, I used a super fine rattan, wrapped it really tight. And this was a very thin joint here, but I really wanted it to work. So I kind of wrapped that to reinforce that part. I don't remember in this juniper branch, don't remember exactly why I put rattan here, but I put two strips. They're a little different sizes. So my guess is that in the banding process or the drying process is maybe they develop tiny little cracks. So I probably reinforced uh, those with some rattan. So that's another handy material uh, to have for some net making. And this one here, this is the one that I mentioned I broke when I was going down a steep bank. And I had some rattan here already. That's where the splice is. Um, I never got around to fixing this. I broke this a long time ago, but I'll probably just try to reinforce it or re-glue them and reinforce it with some rattan to kind of hide that scar, if you will. So that's a handy material to have. Let's get into the finish part. You know, that's going to be tools as well um, in a certain way. But let's talk about specifically about the finishing of the net. There's a lot of materials. Um, some tools uh, that you can use, but the primary tools are going to be your finish. And I'll talk about the finishes that I use or have tried in the past. But sandpaper, um, I didn't bring it here. I think I ran out at some point. Really fine uh, steel wool. I really like that. So that kind of goes along with fine sandpaper as well. But I like steel wool, like a triple zero steel wool. Don't absolutely need it, but it kind of goes with my sandpaper kit usually when I work on that. Brushes to apply the finish, depending on the type of finish that you're using. Nice to have gloves as well when you're handling this stuff. Um, so you just don't have much things going on to your fingers. You're not getting sticky hands from different things, but brush and gloves are really nice to have. And depending on the finish that you use, maybe a mask. I never used to, never use that because I didn't really use toxic, really, really toxic materials. So that's it for kind of the, the finishing tools, some sandpaper, steel wool, and potentially brushes. I like a really thick brush that holds a good amount of finish. But for the most part, um, I actually never even use the brushes. Um, because I'll talk about the finishes and what I like to use. My favorite finish was always tongue oil finish. And that's different from pure tongue oil. Similar but different. Uh, tongue oil is something that a lot of people like. Um, I've tried that on a couple of nets as well, or at least one actually. Um, 
but it just took too long for it to dry in my opinion so i you know like it, i don't even know like what they say but in my experience um the one that i made if i remember right like it was basically a whole day for it to dry so i could potentially apply another coat and then another day and i was typically doing about three coats of finish pretty much with all the finishes that i wanted so it was just a little too much time for me so that's why my bottle is still completely full because i never used it can't even open it right now but one really good advantage of tongue oil pure tongue oil is that it's really natural as far as i know as far as i remember non-toxic uh, you can apply with a soft cloth with no gloves some people even use their hands um, definitely don't want to consume this or put it in your mouth but that's a big benefit of the tongue oil it smells pleasant as well it's not an unpleasant smell I wanted something that would dry a little faster between coats, so I just kind of got it done a little quicker. So tongue oil finish is what I used to use. Now, when you're using those oils, and actually, let me talk about why I selected tongue oil finish as one of my, my primary ones. One of the main, two main things that I liked about it, very water resistant, um, if not completely waterproof. But if I ever felt the need to recoat a net, with tongue oil, as far as I know, again, I don't have too much woodworking experience, but with tongue oil, you don't have to strip any of it off. You know, if you have some kind of, I don't know, you scrape it or something and you want to refinish, all you have to do is just apply tongue oil on top of that and they kind of combine, they fuse, the layers are gonna just combine nicely and you're not gonna really notice a difference in your finish if you kind of do it properly. So th those are the two main reasons I use tongue oil but specific tongue oil finish because it dries faster. Now, a tongue oil um, is going to give you a clear coat on the net. So the juniper net that I'm holding in my hand, uh, completely clear coat, three coats of tongue oil finish, but you can completely see the wood as it is. And I like that. Um, some people love it. This little net that I made, the manzanita, incredibly beautiful colors i mean that's my favorite thing about it is because i removed the bark but there's this kind of inner really thin bark that i it was hard to remove and i couldn't completely remove it so there's got this beautiful marbling of red spots around and definitely to con to conserve to to um, preserve that characteristic a clear finish was best Later on, I started playing also with some dyes uh, because I wanted to get some nets a little bit darker. You know, I just kind of found that the light color net just a little too bright. So I kind of wanted to, you know, because the bark is pretty light color, but I wanted to kind of have more of a wood color, if you will. So I just used different dyes, you know, like I, I tried a couple of different ones, but I think the ones that I liked the most was this well, what I'm holding in my hand here, I haven't used it in a long time, but aniline dye stain. This one is a dark fumed oak oil soluble. So soluble, oil soluble, which I was able to dissolve into the tongue oil finish. Just kind of mix it into a cup, perfectly blend it in. And that was my first coat. Didn't really cover it much, just a nice little stain. Um, you can probably use wood stains as well. I just 
prefer to use the dye and kind of mix it in. Um, you can do a second coat using a dye if you want to get it darker, richer colors, or just a first coat with the dye and the other coats are just pure tongue oil. It depends on how dark you want to get your wood. One that I made is kind of interesting, you know, definitely, I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but it's, it's kind of cool. If you see this net close up, uh, this is a black net. So it's just an experimental one where I used some um, um, transient concentrated dye. And I, if I remember right, I did the same thing. I mixed a little bit of tongue oil with the dye and I applied a couple of coats. But what I'll do is I apply the coats. When it dry completely, I sanded some off and it kind of revealed a little bit of wood here and there. So that's really stunning as well. So you can have a lot of fun playing with the finishes. Read up some stuff on that online, but that's the stuff that I've experimented with. And the last thing that I will mention is something called urushi. Uh, urushi is a plant actually, or at least maybe the, the a resin of a plant um, that's very toxic, like in terms of allergic, um, that people make ink out of in Japan traditionally. So urushi is something where some tenkara nets, bamboo nets, like sometimes they'll have the color. That's the traditional paint uh, or dye or finish that they use. Comes from a plant, natural material, but kind of toxic as far as I know, or at least you don't want to touch it on your skin. Um, you know, I wouldn't recommend it, you know, but it's just, I thought I'd mention the traditional finishes. I bought this stuff in Japan. I'll put a close up on our website. It says cashew on top. I think if you look at cashew, like the cashew nut um, dye, maybe you can find a source in the States. I'm not sure. I bought a set of them when I visited Japan at one point. And that, it's a little hard to work with. It's, it's kind of gooey, a little thicker. I'm not sure if you're supposed to dilute it. Definitely use a brush, brush for it. But it gave me this really kind of rich, deep, kind of thick uh, finish to the net. And this one is made with that urushi. I think this would actually be a urushi um, imitation, technically speaking. But it's just, uh, you know, like a light coat. It almost had this rubbery kind of quality to it. Really nice. I um, enjoy working with that. If you're curious about it, I thought it would be worth mentioning uh, that kind of finish. And then the last part is going to be the attaching the bag. I do have a good video that I've made before about attaching the bag. And I'm going to be embedding that video on this podcast page as well. Um, and um, essentially, there's a couple of ways to do it. The most common way is to get some kind of strong line. There's a variety of lines you can use. You can use hemp. You can use leather. Um, I bought some kind of like braided nylon line. That was probably my favorite. You go through the top part of the, the mesh bag and you make little knots every couple of inches. Um, and it's similar to, I mean, at least in climbing, uh, if you look up, if you're curious about it, it's really similar to a clove hitch. Um, you know, and the arms are going to different sides. So hopefully the video is gonna make it more clear but there's a lot of different ways to do it. You just have to connect the mesh bag to the frame. And another one, just to kind of give you an option, I've only made one net this way, and I think I've seen, actually, as a matter of fact, the net that uh, 
Mr. Yoshimura made uh, was also made this way, where you can use this really fine, um, what do you call them? Super fine, like little eyed pins. I'm sure there's a name for it. I'm blanking out. I'm sorry. Uh, but they're just really thin, very, very thin, uh, you know, like, and they have little eyes and they're no more than like an eighth of an inch. You probably can find different sizes, but what you're doing is you put in this essentially tiny screws. They're not screws. They're just flat or they're, um, uh, straight, you know, they're, they're, uh, smooth, but you're driving them into the wood and, um, and do it every, you know, one to two inches. And then you're just kind of getting the line to go through those. It's a little more labor intensive on putting the screws in there or the, the pins, but a little quicker to connect and mash that way. And the cool thing about it is that you preserve the top um, part of the frame. So you, if you have a particularly beautiful uh, frame on the top, you know, like this one has a nice car here got some scars and curves and I the reason I did this is because I didn't want to hide those flaws so that's why I kind of went with uh, the little pin method and usually they're silver and at the time I bought something to uh, essentially turn metal into a dark blue or almost black um, color just to kind of hide it more blend it in with the mesh so that's another thing to give you some room to think and that's it. A lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, I, uh, it's funny because I, when I decided to do this episode, I thought I didn't have much to talk about and, you know, it'd be awkward to do it in a podcast because it's such a visual method. But here we are now in 20 minutes and oof, it's going to be a long one. So you may want to break this up into two parts. Um, but there's a lot to be said about nets and I, I think I covered it from a novice uh, perspective. As I mentioned, no experience with woodworking, just kind of learn a few things along the way. Uh, if you have some tips to share, please come to our page, tenkariose.com forward slash podcast. Share it on that page, share it on Facebook if you have any tips as a woodworker. Uh, there's some beautiful, some people that have made some really beautiful nets out there um, that posted on Tinkara Anglers, uh, Scott Angling, for example, has made some really nice gnats. Um, if you make a gnat, please share. I'd love to see gnats. I mean, this is literally my favorite part of uh, Tenkara, I think, in terms of the equipment. And it's so much my favorite part that I'm going to drop a little teaser. Uh, we are actually working on a new gnat, and I'm really, really excited about it. And... It's going to come out this year. It's going to come out in 2020. Um, we might actually be getting very close to it. Uh, the design, I'm, I'm really excited because the design is something that is completely unlike anything that I described here today, um, but also completely unlike any net in the market here in Japan. It's got incredibly well thought out features that our team has been working on for, for a while now. Um, we are getting close to we're, we're kind of getting close to our last prototype stages my guess is that we could have a prototype and a you know maybe we'll do a kickstarter campaign for that one because there's going to be some high tooling cost but potentially you know may even 
we'll see. Fingers crossed we can kind of pull this off. We're getting very close. I'm very, very excited to show you what's going to come out. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I kind of started driving that project partly because I wanted to start making nets again. I was like, you know, we got to offer a net. We, we used to have a wooden net. Um, and the last batch that we had, or the one before, just had all these, cra you know, cracks on it. It's, uh, it's tough to sell at volume, um, you know, something like that, because you can have flaws. It's hard to warranty. It can break. So we're trying to address all of those things in this net as well. So stay tuned. Uh, I waited to kind of mention this in the very end. So if you listen to this whole episode, I think you're a hardcore Tenkara angler. You're very interested in the topic. So stay tuned for that. And uh, we'll put it out as soon as we can. Trust me, we, are, we can't wait to see it in your hands and you making use of it. So that's it for today's episode of the Tenkara Cast. Share any comments you have with us. Hopefully you enjoy the topic. If you have questions that are on things that I didn't cover, but I think in an hour and 20 minutes, I probably cover what you wanted to know and more. <laughs> but if you have questions, don't hesitate to let me know. Uh, and until next time on the next Tenkara Cast.